five, score! Rick Vaughn. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Vaughn, Gary Madden. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 60 of Squid and Ultimate Leafs fan show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Not bad, not bad, Michael. Uh, beautiful day here in Niagara Falls. Uh, lousy round of golf this morning, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm doing well. That's good to hear. Well, Squid, our guest today would enjoy a 34-year career as an NHL referee calling 1,904 regular season games, 12 Stanley Cup finals, 261 playoff games, World Cup of Hockey in 96, the 98 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, was voted by the players as the most consistent official in the game, worked in broadcasting, and probably the best here in professional sports. Please welcome to the Squid and Ultimate <laughs> Fan Show, Kerry Fraser. Kerry, how are we doing today? Mike, I'm doing great. It's great to be back with uh, my buddy Rick Vive. Uh, we played some charity golf events, and, and that smile on his face that we're looking at right now, I remember from the ice, especially when he scored goals and I was standing on the goal line that night. I wasn't going to miss the opportunity to be in the picture, buddy. There is Fraze standing right there. And you know what? When when Wayne Gretzky scored 50 uh, in that, uh, what, 37 games? 39 games. It was, he got five yeah. goals. 39, he got five goals that night against the Philadelphia Flyers. The last one, he opened net and we could feel it. You know, you could feel the energy like, he might be able to do this. And sure enough, goalie's out. Uh, Pete Peters is on the bench for the extra attack. And Gretz gets the puck and he's in the neutral zone. I took off like a rocket trying to catch him to be ahead of him and on the goal line so that I could be in the pitcher point at the net when that puck went in. <laughs> he shot it from too far out. I couldn't get there. I didn't make the pitcher. And I was on Rick Vives 50 that was ended up on the Leafs calendar, the cover of Leafs calendar that year. And that was the only time I would ever have an opportunity to be on a Leafs calendar. Well, yeah. well. now, how are you spending your time otherwise for the last 18 months? So, so let's get through that first off. Uh, we're doing great. Thank you. And, and I hope everybody has been safe uh, yeah. that are listening. Uh, it's been just a crazy time for all of us uh, all around the world. Uh, Kathy and I, uh, the, the grandkids, we have seven children and 12 grandkids, and most of them live close by us. Uh, we, uh, the kids stayed away from us. Uh, you know, we're, we're older, compromised a little bit uh, yeah. uh, with health issues. And, uh, but uh, I'll tell you, I recognize that at my age and stage of life, I couldn't afford to miss a day, let alone a year. So I was out riding my my road bike every day that it wasn't uh, raining or snowing. I'd do 25 miles a day back in blueberry country in uh, South New Jersey, where we're at. And my immune system was spiked up. I feel good. Uh, and uh, so we traveled four times uh, during the pandemic to our favorite place in the world, which is Aruba. Uh, we tested negative all the time going in and coming out. And uh, you know, we're, we're living life, which I encourage uh, people to do. You have to be smart, look after yourselves. But, you know, just just live life uh, as best we can in the conditions that we're facing. 
Now, before we get started, Carrie, I want you to give me the skinny on my co-host. Did he try to, let's get it out of the way right now. Did he try to sneak infractions by you or were you wise to him or, or was he just not quick enough to slip a slash hook or trip by you? Well, you know, he was a captain and I always tried to communicate with captains. Squid, honestly, was a guy that I could communicate with. And, uh, you know, he's going to try and take a break when he can. And he'd try to convince me, you know, when he thought uh, I needed a little do now. Uh, but uh, he was he was a great player. He was a sniper. But he was also a guy that went into the hard areas of the game back in those times. And and I've got a – when we start talking about cross-checking, I have a, a story uh, from a game uh, when Rick was playing in Buffalo uh, that is firmly etched in my memory banks, and I'll never forget it. Uh, and cross-checking is something uh, – you know, he didn't wear that horse collar to keep his neck warm. Uh, there was a reason for that. He had neck issues, and and uh, it was resulting from going into those hard places. Uh, and we, as reps, were allowing way too much heavy lumber, uh, as they are now. Well, I enjoyed going there, to be honest with you. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, it, if you're going to score goals, you, sometimes you got to you got to go and you got to take a little bit of a a licking to to get a rebound or a tip in or something. But. Um, I thought there was probably a little bit too much cross-checking going on back, even in our day, uh, even though the game was kind of played that way. But, I mean, like just standing there and getting cross-check after cross-check after cross-check. And I remember one time I was playing for Buffalo. We were playing Montreal. It was a playoff game. And I'm in front of the net in the power play. I got Ludwig on one side and Chelios on the other. And when the puck was over here, Chelios would come in, and all it would just keep going like this, one after another. And then when the puck went over here, Ludwig could come in and do the same. Meanwhile, Patrick Waugh is whacking me on the leg with his goalie stick. And I forget who – I don't know who was doing the game. I know it wasn't Kerry. Must have been Paul Stewart. Must have just, been Paul Stewart. <laughs> no, no, it was one of the older guys. Could have been Paul Stewart. Uh, no, it was one of the older guys. It might have been uh, uh, Hoagie or, or Bruce Hood or one of those guys. Anyway, he just looked at me and went, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, what? what's he got to do for Christ's sakes? Like, you know, does he got to chop my arm off before he gets a penalty or what? But you know what? It was. Uh, what You know, I, I got it. I have to share with you this particular game in and and Rick was a tough guy and he went there and he took it and he's goals from from in that spot but this particular one I'll never forget and I called a two minute crossing penalty on the play it was an extension full extension and it got him up high and Rick went down and he's a tough guy but when I when I came to him and he was sort of in the fetal position and I don't say this disrespectfully I say it because he's tough he was actually, I could hear him whimpering. It hurt so much. It, was, it wasn't a crime, but it was a, uh, uh, uh. he was trying to recover from it. And he was, he played hurt. He was playing hurt that night, as you always did. You know, if bone wasn't through the skin, you kept going. So when you look at, fans don't realize uh, the, the pain and suffering that was administered. I will tell you that Chris Pronger, for me, was the one guy, 
that I had to educate the most because when he was playing for the St. Louis Blues, big, strong guy, and when they got a penalty and he came on to kill that penalty, he thought that anything would go. He didn't think a second penalty would happen until I continually gave second penalties for that boom, full extension cross check. Finally, he got it. He, he, he recognized, and I said, I don't know what happens other nights, but I'm going to tell you, I don't care if you've got two, three, four, or five guys sitting in the penalty box. When you deliver that kind of blow to a man from the back, you're going to get a penalty. And, uh, you know, we finally had a meeting of the minds. I go back to training camp. My first, I, I just finished playing junior A hockey in Ontario. I go to a referee school, scouted, boom. Two days later, I'm at the NHL training camp for officials. I knew enough as a, as a player and a rookie to keep my mouth shut and my ears open. I'm going to learn a lot. So we were doing a rules session. And I'm sitting beside Lloyd Gilmore, who didn't call a whole lot. Yeah. And he did that Russian game in Philly when the Russians left the ice. They were, it was like, it was prison rules. And uh, yeah. so I, uh, I sit beside Lloyd and they're talking about spearing. And we had a two-minute penalty or a five-minute penalty for spearing based on the judgment of the referee. So I said to Mr. Gilmore, I said, excuse me, Lloyd, what's the difference between a two-minute spearing penalty or a five-minute spearing penalty? He said, well, kid, if you see the stick go in through the, through the front and it doesn't come out the back, it's two minutes. If it comes out the back, it's five. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now, Kerry, let me ask you this. Uh, would you chat with captains if there's a history between two teams from a recent encounter that got out of hand, maybe as a reminder that you weren't going to put up with any nonsense? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, I'll tell you, I was put into games, uh, reassigned on short order. Uh, one was the Leafs uh, and Ottawa uh, when uh, Alfie threw the stick in the crowd and uh, yeah. there was all kinds of nonsense going on. Uh, I was pulled into that game. I was supposed to be working in Colorado. Uh, I was immediately reassigned to go to Ottawa. Uh, they knew that, and it was McCreary and I, um, and uh, he had been assigned to the game. I was brought into the game. So I'm dropping the puck as the senior ref. And they knew that we had the game face on. Uh, there was no nonsense going to happen. And yeah. it, there was no friendly. Uh, you know, oftentimes I'd come onto the ice, hey, you know, how you doing? How's this? How's that? This was all business. And they knew it. Uh, and uh, we had three penalties right off the bat. Bang, bang, bang. And it was a, it was a cakewalk from then on in. Uh, they knew that uh, it wasn't going to happen on our watch. So, Squid, if you was the captain, would you go and speak to a referee before a game that you knew there could be, could get maybe out of hand and see how the ref's mood was or maybe how he was feeling that night with you guys playing? Well, most of them would come to us, actually, okay. and talk about yeah. it and, yeah. you know, just okay. say, hey, listen, you know, we know what happened the last time you guys met. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want a reoccurrence of that. So we'd appreciate it if you'd go back to your benches and tell your coaches and so on. And, you know, there was uh, the one thing that I'll say is that, you know, back when I played anyway, the officials were great. They, they, their communication on the ice was, you know, fantastic. I mean, yeah, I might have said some, you know, that was a bullshit call sometimes or, uh, and maybe a little more an animated than that. But <laughs> at the end of the day, they would come over and they would talk to you and, and, you know, so you got a clear answer and, you know, maybe it wasn't always the answer you wanted to hear, but yet yeah. it was a conversation and, and 
I, I thought that was great. I mean, and then there was a period there of I don't know how many years where the referees would just like put our hands up and say, just get away, get away. And then now I, I see them starting to communicate a little bit more uh, because it's a younger generation probably, and they need to be talked to, I think, probably throughout the, the game. Boys, oh, I, go ahead, Harry. Mike, Mike, if I may, I had a rare yeah. weekend, rare weekend off one time, and the Hartford Whalers played in Boston the night before. It's a Sunday morning. I get a call from director of officiating. I love the man, John Colley. Yeah. Next said, Kerry, I'm sorry to have to do this to you. You got a weekend off, one a season, but he said, I got to send you to Hartford. I had a call last night. He said from the owners of both teams, the general managers of both teams, and the coaches of both teams. It was World War III, and they've got the rematch tonight back in Hartford. I got to send you in. I get on a flight, boom, I show up. I stepped onto the ice, and as the teams came on for the national anthem, I had Captain Ray Bork and Randy Latissour come to me, verge on me at the same time. And they both said, oh, my God, thank God you're here. They said, last night we were afraid somebody was going to get murdered. <laughs> and so they, those two teams had already talked about, like, ooh, we're a little nervous here. And then I said, okay, boys, I'll let you play us, but you know where the line is, and uh, I'm going to lay the hammer down if I have to. Uh, let's just get her uh, on good good stead when I drop the puck. And that's what happened. It, it just, you know, some nights – you know, Rick, when you've had a, a battle the, the night before, there's not much left to tank. You just want to play. And especially when they said, we thought somebody was literally going to get killed. Well, I was going to say to you now, what about enforcers, Kerry? Everyone in the building Love. knows something's going to occur at some point during the contest. You're not dumb. You know it's going to happen. Did you have to remind these guys, boys, do your job. Don't embarrass me and make a mockery of this, though. You know what? I loved developing. Rick hit the nail on the head. Developing relationships was the most successful. And I think one of the reasons I lasted as long as I did, I worked hard at developing uh, relationships with, with the players. And the the tough guys on the team are the ones that were the most respected by their teammates. The only guy I didn't really get along, Knuckles Nyland, he hated me. Now we're besties. We do a radio show on TSN every Tuesday during the season. But I will tell you, Tiger Williams, for example. I saw Tiger in the Western League uh, you know, before I came up to the NHL. Uh, and uh, one night in, in Maple Leaf Gardens, he brought his elbow up a little bit. I said, listen, Tiger, you got that elbow up pretty high. I said, listen, buddy. You got to get there. I'm going to have to give you one. I give you a break there. He said, Oh, thanks, Fraze. Now, the very next shift, I'm with him in the corner and he's battling a guy. The puck moves up the wall and it's going to go out in the neutral zone. And I did a hit. I entrapped him. I turned to go up, follow the play, snap my head back, right as his elbow on the guy, right in the ear. Boom, <laughs> up went my hand. I said, Tiger, I warned you. He said, I know, Fraze. He said, My bad. And he went to the penalty box. So those are the guys when, when, you know, the blank hits the fan, you could go to somebody that, that the team respected and say, hey, help me out here. Let's bring it down a little bit. Um, when guys fight, and now we know too many hits to the head isn't good for anybody, okay? Back then, there were times where I felt that the game needed a fight to bring it down. And there were times when I even promoted one. 
really? won't believe it, but I did. Yeah. I would say, you know, when the linesmen would get in and everybody's yap, 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 and they're tough guys and tough guys. And, and I'd say, hey, you want to go? And I because I'll get the linesmen out of here. Typically, they were embarrassed and they had to go. But there were some guys that started back and tracking pretty quick because they did not want to fight. <laughs> and those those three most feared words that a referee can ever utter, let them go. <laughs> Squid, can you add to that? Uh, no, it's like, I mean, that, that's the thing about they they looked after the game really well back then. I mean, it was kind of like, like they were the guardians of, of the game, so to speak, when it was on the ice. And I thought they did a great job of, you know, whether they needed to settle things down or like Kerry said, like, okay, some nights, hey, you guys got to, you want to go? Okay, go ahead. I'll get the linesman out of here. Like just simple little things like that. Uh, you know, I think go a long way or went a long way in my day anyway to, to you know, keep the game uh professional i guess that would probably be the best word i could use well let's let's go let's carry let's get let before we get into your career i want to get let's go through this year's playoffs first right off the bat your thoughts on the officiating uh they really took a beating uh by the media the worst i've ever seen uh and you know we have to understand uh the situation with covid with referees uh being assigned strictly in canada players playing in a canadian division and the u.s division so that that sort of made it difficult to have a rotation of officials that you bring into a series and bring out your top guys uh as well as the lower rated guys um so that made it difficult to begin with and then they had to stay in a series for too long and it overexposure can be a real problem we know mm -hmm. that in a playoff series, through all the playoffs that I that I did, and and the finals, you know, game one is a feel out sometimes. Game two, if the visiting team wins, the pressure's on the home team to win. But as that series prolongs, and we get to games four, maybe a deciding game. Game five is wicked because somebody's on the bubble tip, and so they look for excuses. And you know, the referees and the linesmen can be the biggest biggest excuse. Uh, for for a loss uh, and there's games played within the game where a general manager a coach will get the series supervisor get in his ear and and you know berate him berate the officials and say face-offs for example uh, uh, Patrice Bergeron he's one of the best face-off guys so the the objective there would be to get that 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 coach or or uh opposing general manager to up the series supervisor and say look at him he's cheating he, he you can't possibly win 65 percent of your face-offs and so now the seed is planted it goes to linesman's ear in a meeting just even subliminal make sure that he puts his stick down make sure he does it right and i saw patrice bergeron throwing out a lot of face-offs uh this playoffs that never happened before i was going to ask yeah, you I thought, you know what ahead, I, I, sorry, I, I got to agree with you there, Kerry. I think they took a lot of heat yeah. when I don't think it was warranted. I mean, you know what? I think they refereed just like they do every other year, whereas the regular season is one way. The first round is a little bit tougher. The sec but when you get to the Stanley Cup Finals, I mean, you don't want to be the guy who decides the outcome of the game. And I understand that 100%. It was the way they were in my day. 
It's the way they refereed this year, and I didn't think they did a very bad job at all, I'll be honest. Well, I was going to well, say, there... so one, Kerry, oh, sorry, Kerry, the one thing you can pick up on off of this is that just continue on your thought was the number of cross checks. Now, you touched on that earlier with Squid yeah. and some of the guys. More people we talked to, we had Rick talking on, a couple of the guys we've had on earlier made comments about that. It seemed to get worse the more the players got away with it, obviously. What were your thoughts on that? I mean, that really stood out this year. And maybe pick up on this part. The part about that from what people are questioning about officials this year, from fans and even players, and I'm sure you hear this endlessly, why the two sets of rules? Why in a regular season, all these things are called in the playoffs all of a sudden, they let it go. And the thinking is, from my standpoint, is I enjoy it either way, but the point is, is isn't that almost slowing the skilled players counterproductive for the NHL when it should be showcasing the elite talent of the league? Mike, I'm on your page and, and, you know, it, well, this, this is, hold on, me. hold on. This isn't, this isn't uh Disney on ice here, Mike. This is the cup finals for Christ's sake. I know. I, I said, I, I like it. I, I don't like give it, a, but, but I don't give a shit if we, if we, if we <laughs> shut down the, the skill guys, I mean, that that's what you need to do to clean, win. That, clean, it, clean. Hey, it's, well, it was fairly clean. Montreal got called a ton of times for cross-checking, and their yeah. penalty kill was really good. So, I mean, you know, that's I'll give you that one, Rick. Their penalty, kill was, their penalty kill was excellent. Montreal's uh, kill was yeah. awesome. Well, they but, got a lot of practice. But here's what, yeah, they did, but here's what they did. <laughs> I don't think the, the referees um, were very good, uh, sadly. Uh, and the reason I say that is... The, the video replay doesn't lie. And in the Montreal-Las uh, Vegas series, there was egregious infractions that were allowed to go unpenalized. And, and cameras don't lie. And the referee would be looking right at it and then would turn his head away, didn't want to see it. That one was highly publicized. So when the inmates run the prison, yep. then... The ref, it's an awful position to be in. We've all been there where you've let this one go. And now to be fair, you have to let one go the other way. It's always worse than the one that you let go previously. And the snowball starts to roll down the hill. And then the ref is boxed in. What do you call? How do you bring the reins back on that horse? It's when, you know, you know it's, yeah. it's out of the barn and it's going. So ultimately now it's a puck over the glass or some automatic penalty but it's really a tough situation to be in i think that the game should be played with the same rules from the regular season to the stanley cup playoffs i know that there's there's more at stake i know the pressure on the, the refs but they need to be supported for making those tough calls and i'm not talking ticky tacky stuff we were seeing stuff that was was like the heavy cross checks, the hits from behind that I was like, wow, that when, when I go like that, you know, that's yeah. my reaction that this is, this is beyond a two minute penalty. And oftentimes they, they were called, uh, but yet then there would be something like a little stick slash or something like that. And, and uh, it would be called. There's not a balance at that point. And the players like Rick would recognize that. They know that they can get away with certain things and they will. Because if the, Macaulay told me years ago, he said, Kerry, the biggest deterrent for a player not to commit an infraction is the fear that the referee will call it. 
we love the intensity of the game. We love mm -hmm. to play on the edge. And, and I always tried to let them play on the edge. But once they cross it, they had to know that, that when I was out there, I had a line. And if they crossed that line, I'd let them go to the line and be fair. But you, you go over it and you have to be penalized. I didn't commit the infraction. They did. Why do we as referees feel guilty for controlling the outcome of the game when in fact we let an infraction go, we're perhaps having an effect on the outcome of the game? Why are we there? Yeah. Well, I think the word we're looking for is consistency. And I think you just touched on it. That's that would be the perfect world. But again, when the stakes get higher, it's pretty tough. When you agree, but to Mike, they have to be supported, buddy. They, they when oh, I agree, I agree. When a referee makes that ballsy yeah. call, that tough yeah. one that you know, I've had I made calls and disallowed goals that I knew I would be dead right. You know, in, in uh, the Alain Cote disallowed goal in the Battle of Quebec in game five yeah. in 1987. I saw that play materialize, and and uh, Paul Gillis dragged uh, uh, Hayward out of the net with a with his skate and a stick, and Matt Snedlin was on his back, and it was an open net. And I'm seeing Cote cut into the middle, and I am in my head going, "Oh, please don't score," because I know <laughs> that I have to disallow that goal. I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror. If I didn't disallow that, sure enough, they're celebrating and I'm coming into camera waving it off. Now, what would happen? That was with a minute and a half left in a tie game, game five, Stanley Cup playoff, Battle of Quebec, which nothing is more intense than that ever. And I'm disallowing that goal that would have been the winner. And what happened? Michelle Bergeron's up on the bench. He's pulling his hair out and the... <laughs> They never actually got back into it. They were in shock. Next face-off, Carbono wins the draw. Down they go. Kirk Muller over uh, to Ryan Walter. Zoom. In the net. Game-winning goal. I never worked another playoff game that year. I got dropped like a hot potato. Can and you were right, though. Um, but I was dead right. Okay, Kerry, today... When you look at like the war room they have and everything and, and so many challenges and yep. you know offsides and going you know and all that kind of stuff the the uh the goals being called off and always being reviewed like i don't know i i have a hard time with that because i think there should be a a, a little bit of a human error yes i want to see the call get called properly but there's got to be a little bit of a, a human error in the game, I mean, again, unless the one day they they have robots doing it and and they get everything exactly perfectly right, but uh, right now it's not that way. And uh, all these challenges, I I don't know personally. That's just my opinion. Well, I'll tell you, Rick. I welcomed the video replay when we brought it in '98, and and the reason being is I wanted it to prove that we were right 99% of the time. But on the odd occasion when we weren't right, and especially on the scoring of goals, which decides the outcome of a game, I wanted us to be yeah. perfect. So I'm okay with that. But here's what, and you mentioned the, the situation room in, in Toronto. Great guys, all knowledgeable hockey men. But I'll tell you, mm -hmm. you and I, Rick, may differ on what should be allowed in going to the net, goalie interference. You were taught to crash the net, go hard to the net. 
do as much yeah. as you could to, to obstruct the goalie, whether it's physically or visually. And that's how you were taught to play the game. And it resulted in a lot of goals being scored. I, on the other hand, know the difference between what a player is coached to do and what he is allowed to do within the playing rules. That's my job. So we could have a discussion or a, you and I could be sitting in the situation room. You might say, well, that's a good goal. And I might say, no, Rick, it's not. And here's why from a, from a rules perspective. And so I think there needs to be more officiating knowledge in that room. And I think when we looked at, um, I was ordering a pizza there. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> when you go back to a couple of years ago in the playoffs, uh, with Dan Pass, uh, Jumbo Joe Thornton uh, playing for uh, San oh, Jose yeah. and the game's in St. Louis in overtime and it's a hand pass winning goal and everybody's yeah. up in arms about it. And But that was a, a call that had to be made within the rules by the officials on the ice. Situation room couldn't call in and say, hey, whoa, you got a hand pass. It's not allowed. There's certain conditions which they could rule upon. Here's what I suggest. You have a standby backup referee assigned to the crew in every playoff game. Let's not have him just sit in the dressing room his gear on short of his skates waiting to, if he gets called into action let's have him functional he's an official he's he'd have to step on the ice and referee that game if somebody got hurt so let's use him in the rink and he could have said it's a referee's call i'm the backup referee i'm assigned to the crew that was a hand pass he'd get on the blower he'd call guys on the ice say boys i just reviewed it I'm saying it's a hand pass. It is no goal. And that referee made that call. He's part of the crew. Why not do that? That's a good thought. Yeah, that's well, that's here's, a very good thought. I mean, and here's here's my overall view on that, Kerry, is I'm thinking, do you think the war room, we know what it's there for. We know what it's used for. But also from the referee's perspectives, it's another set of, they've got enough set of eyes on them already. They're looking for the consistency, but there's a referee though. Now you got more people watching you. I mean, think about this. There, you're getting your calls reviewed, and listen, officials are only human. If your number right. shows up three times more reviewed than the other guy, at some point, your bosses are going to take notice. I mean, these guys can't be all bad luck that his calls are always being reviewed because he's they've been wrong. Does this put more pressure on a ref? You think, Mike? There's two things here that I'm going to share with you. First of all, I agree that uh, the the referees today are relying on the ups, this, the eye in the sky too much. They don't want to make okay. the call. I wanted to see everything. I wanted to make the mm -hmm. call. Obviously, we're human. We don't see everything. God knows that happened. But if you try your best to be in the right position at the right time to make that call and then have video review you know, confirm it for you, that's a win-win. That's awesome. But yep. I had a game in uh, New York in Madison Square Garden. And sometimes in the two-referee system, things just happen to occur in your wheelhouse, in your zone or area of coverage. And the first four penalties that night in the first period were like 15 feet from me in my wheelhouse. My arm went up to call a delayed penalty. My partner, 100 feet away, when my arm went up, his arm went up. Now, when both referees have their arms up, you're supposed to confer to make sure you have the same penalty before you go to announce it at the timekeeper's bench. Not this night. Four times in a row, this guy blasted off, flipped on his mic, announced the penalty. 
I'm thinking, what the heck is this all about? <laughs> now the fifth one with about two minutes left in the third in the first period, it's I'm the back ref and I'm following the play and the other guy's leading the play and he, the puck carrier's over in his wheelhouse and he's looking right at it and there's a water ski, a hold up on on the off wing. Up goes my arm. My arm's up eight seconds, nine seconds. All of a sudden, on the delay in the end zone, the other guy puts his arm up. And I went I went to, I'm standing beside linesman Pat DiPuzzo on the blue line. I said, oh, my God, Pat, have we got a second penalty? Like, I didn't see anything. He said, I don't know either, Phrase. I stopped play with a change of possession. Now, this guy, for four times in a row, went to the penalty box, flipped on his mic, and announced it. This is the first time he skated over to me. He said, what do you got? I knew he didn't see it, right? I said, what have I got? What have you got? <laughs> he went, uh, uh, uh. I said, yeah, uh, uh, you didn't see it. And I, so I went over and announced the penalty period ends. I said, what the hell are you doing? Like, what is going on here? He said, well, I got a friend that's on the off ice crew in Montreal. And uh, he got a directive from uh, hockey operations. And they're now recording which referee calls the penalties. I was 0 for 4. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, Carrie, I want to get into a couple. Hey, I want to get into a couple of the, the your relation. You talk about relationships. Let's talk about some of the a little more serious ones now. Some of the battles you've had over the years, and some of the good ones you've had. One story in your book, and people, if you hadn't read Carrie's book, read it. It's a must read. It's a terrific uh, account of his career and about life in any child. It's terrific. Um, Theo Fleury. Yeah, you, you tell a very interesting story in the book about him, about him doing a complete 180 as a player after almost threatening to murder you one night yeah. <laughs> and coming back to you. And I thought that was a very telling story for your role as a referee and official. Well, you know, Mike, uh, we all put our pants on the same way and, and we have to have compassion for our neighbors and our friends. And, and uh, the hockey community is no exception. All great people. You know, we battle one another on the ice, or, or but when it's over, it's over typically. Not with Theo, though. Theo had his own issues. We know that now, but yeah. we didn't know it back then. And and so in 1996, and, and I was the guy, the the he, he hated, you know, anybody in, in sort of an authoritative figure. Uh, I was about his same size, and I was his target more than anyone. And maybe he just... Maybe it was my ego that he thought, whatever. Uh, and so this one particular game in the Stanley Cup playoffs in, in uh, 1996, uh, he's playing for Calgary. It's in Chicago. He took two penalties. The second one, he went ballistic. He cursed at me like in the most foul, profane language you could ever think of. And he wrote it in his book, Playing With Fire, and it was exactly what he said to me that night. He challenged me to a fight in the parking lot. He took his helmet off. He threw it at me. It hit my right skate. The adrenaline's flowing. My legs twitching. The muscles wanted. I wanted to kick that thing back in his face. I just <laughs> calm, took a breath, threw him out of the game. Now four years later, we fast tracked to 2000, December 19th of 2000, and he had signed a free agency contract with the New York Rangers for eight million bucks, a one-year deal. They didn't put him in the in the league right off the bat. He was put in the league substance abuse program. St. Louis Blues are playing that night. Joel Quenville is the coach. And Tyson Nash, at the end of the first period, there's a scrum down in the corner, and Tyson Nash is involved with Theo. The play 
disbands, the players leave the ice, and it's just Theo and I standing at the red line between the two benches at Madison Square Garden. And this little mighty mouse that had, you know, challenged me to a fight and thrown his helmet at me came to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Kerry, I'm trying to clean up my life, honest. I haven't done, and he mentioned the drug, in X number of months. I haven't had a drink in X number of months. I'm trying to clean my life up. Don't let him talk to me like that. And I said, who and what? Now, human nature might dictate, I could have said, you know what? It looks good on you. How do you like it? Yeah. You yep. remember back in, yeah. I saw this wounded human being in front of me and I just wanted to take his pain away. It looked like one of my kids wanted to just make him feel better. So I quickly thought, and I said, if I can get Tyson Nash back here at the start of the next period, right on this spot, and he gives you a sincere apology, will you accept it like a man? He said, yeah, I will. I said, before we departed, I said, now promise me if I get him here, you won't break your stick over his head. He said, I promise. <laughs> so I go right into the, I pass our dressing room and Rick knows where the, the visiting team coach's room is. And I go in there and I say, Joel, this is what your player, Tyson Nash said to Theo Fleury. Joel is a class act. He rolled his eyes. He said, do you want me to tell him to take his gear off? He thought I was going to throw him out of the game. I said, no, how about this? Apology, be good for Theo, and it might not even hurt your guy. He said, great idea, and he ran out of the coach's room right into his dressing room, player's room. I'm standing with Theo. St. Louis Blues come out out of the, the Zamboni entrance at MSG, and Tyson looked like he was going to do a skate pass. I flagged him over. I said, do you have something to say to this man? Tyson was affected by this. His lip was quivering. He looked Theo right in the eye. He said, Theo, I am sincerely sorry. I went way below the line for what I said. And he said, I wish you all the best that you've got ahead of you. And he tapped him on the shin pad with his stick. I went, you good with that, Theo? He said, yeah, I'm good with that. I said, boys, shake hands. Let's play. Well, Tyson Nash did what he typically does. He was a leading the league in drawn penalties. He had the loose helmet, the long hair, and he'd flip his head back. Somebody touch him and he'd draw a penalty, he'd take a dive. And he did his job that night. And uh, Brown, he got Brown on defense for the Rangers so mad, he, he jumped him and fought him. And he got extra penalty minutes and the St. Louis Blues won the game. Now, 10 years later passed, guys. 2010, I retire, I'm sitting down and I'm writing my, my book. And I reveal those comments about that situation in in uh, with uh, uh, Chicago, and I went, man, I I always want to take a bad situation and try and make it good. So I called Tyson Nash. I said, hey Tyson, Kerry here. I'm, I'd like your permission to to share a story. Do you remember the situation with Theo Fleury in Madison Square Garden, December 19, 2000? Guys, the phone went quiet. It was dead airspace. He went, carry. that was a life-altering situation for me. It was career-changing. I said, talk to me, tell me about it. And he wrote in his own words, I put it in, in the book, in his own words, what that situation meant to him. And it was a wake-up call for him. And I got to tell you, Theo and Tyson and I, whenever we're asked to speak somewhere, even to this day, that story comes up. And they share it from their perspective, and I share it from mine. Here's the message, gang. We never know how we can affect someone in a positive way. Something simple. This was simple, an apology. So we all have that power. And I'm not just talking players and coaches. I'm talking about your viewers. 
You can make a difference in the life of somebody. Just do something nice, something simple. Mm -hmm. We're all here together. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything better than helping someone. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, and, and it is very, it doesn't take that much. Sometimes it's just a conversation with someone. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it warms my heart when I hear those types of stories and, and I love to do that myself, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I've, I've been through my own battles and, and came out the other side. And if there's anything I can do to help anybody else, but I've had many calls from ex-NHLers who are having issues. And and I've talked to them and, and kind of got them to go to rehab. And, and a lot of them have come out the other side stronger than when they went in. And I, you know, to me, that that makes me feel pretty darn good that I'm able to to help someone and uh well somebody you know, somebody why, must why, have helped why wouldn't you? you yeah yeah somebody must have helped yeah. you along well, the way you know i got to the point where it was pretty dire and i i actually decided i, I made that decision myself and uh yeah people did help me when i got there and uh, you know throughout the whole process but i made that very difficult decision that you know what if I don't go, then, you know, I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose everything. And that was the last thing I said to me. I can't, I can't let that happen. And uh, I booked it in the way I went. So God bless you. I mean, You're an inspiration. It's, uh, now, Kerry, away well, from that, let, let's go to the opposite way. Let's go to some of the coaches. Now, you've had some famous battles with coaches over the years. No question. Every, there's not a referee alive that hasn't. But Pat Quinn... <laughs> I know comes to mind immediately. So how about Pat Quinn? And let's throw, and we got to get this name in because it shows up every show or every other way, a show, a squid, Mike Keenan. There's got to be a Mike Keenan story in there too. Absolutely. Well, well, first of all, Pat Quinn and I, he just, Brian Burke told me when he was the assistant uh, GM at and, uh, Vancouver, he said, Kerry, don't take it personally. He's all referees. He thinks you're all out to screw him. <laughs> Well, so I had a game and he's coaching the Leafs and it's a Saturday night, hockey night in Canada game, Montreal. And I was, I, I took a, a, a young man that I met uh, at the Marriott, uh, Sir Savarge's Marriott there in a wheelchair. And he was from London, Ontario. And I, I want to know who his, his favorite goalie was. And he, he mentioned it. And I said, well, would you like to go to the morning skate? So I took him over. So I got back for lunch late. And it's just me sitting in the, in the restaurant at, at the Marriott. And Pat Quinn came in late with the paper under his arm. And Benito, the maitre d', is going to sit him down. The place is empty. Puts him right down at the uh, table beside me. And, and Pat looks at Benito. He says, Benito. He said, the whole GD place is empty. And you're going to sit me down at the table beside the GD referee for the game tonight? <laughs> I thought he was joking. It was, but he wasn't. It was uncomfortable as heck. So he he's reading his paper, and and I knew that his daughter was applying for citizenship, and we were in process at the same time. My family uh, for dual citizenship, U.S. naturalization. So I and Pat being a lawyer, I said, "Hey, Pat, uh, your daughter, I understand, is going through the immigration uh, thing. Can you?" Can I ask you a couple of questions? So we had a conversation, just like Rick said. It's about relationship. It's just a you know a little conversation. So it was friendly, and, and he gave me some good advice, and I thanked him. 
Now the Leafs win the game that night, one to nothing. And I see him walking across. He's got the big, big smile and the jowls. And he's walking across the ice. And I skated up to him before I left. I said, hey, Pat, see, all you had to do was have lunch with the GD referee. He said, if I had known that's how easy it was, I would have done it long ago. <laughs> you know, in his last, in his, and then now he's in his final season and my final season. He's in Edmonton, right? And he's yeah. ripping my young referee. And he's just screaming at him. And I, I skated over to the bench and I said, Pat, I am so happy that you came out of retirement knowing it was my final season. And he started to laugh and the all started going. And I'll tell you, my very final game in Edmonton, I went into the coach's room uh, and, and I had a beer uh, with Pat and his staff. And we had a we had a conversation hockey guys you know buried the hatchet and uh it was it was terrific I, I had so much respect for him he did so much in the game and he was loyal to his players man i'll tell you and Rick could probably agree with yeah. me there but mike keenan you know iron mike i got along with great we moved down <laughs> from sarnia ontario 1988 his house was on the market he was a motivated seller he hired by the flyers and he's off in chicago he needed to get rid of this house and i bought it so Years went by. He won the. He went from Chicago. He won the cup with uh, with the the Rangers. Then he went to St. Louis for a short period. Then he was in Boston, and we're now in the two referee system in Boston. And again, he's he's ripping my young referee partner, screaming and yelling at him. And I'm back to the ref, and I have to go over and do the line change. So I wanted to get him off the kid. So I went over and I looked him right in the face and I pointed my finger at him. I said, Mike, that effing house you sold me, the roof's leaking. <laughs> well, all the players started laughing. Without a word of a lie, Keenan backed up. His eyes got big. He said, Kerry, honest, I thought I got it fixed. <laughs> Two weeks later, we had a big rainstorm in New Jersey. I had three fireplaces, and water was pouring down the chimney. So I went up on the roof, and he had all this black tar around the flashing. It just shrunk over time, and he got me. That's it. Well, we're, we're getting into our last yeah, time. We have so much we want to get through with you. And uh, I want to get into the Olympics, Kerry, the yeah, Olympic experience. Yeah. Now, okay. I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit here. First off, going to the NHL, you're a Leaf fan growing up. It's easy to divest yourself from the Maple Leafs doing your job. People do that. Maybe Leaf fans don't believe that, but you do. Um, now, going to the world stage, your country's playing, you're refereeing the game. How difficult was that to separate your focus as a referee, especially with not just a local fan base watching, you got all of Canada. And if you recall, you'll know this name, Tom Brown, the 74 Russia WHA series, a couple bad calls, his career was ruined. Well, Mike, I have to tell you that my objective as, as a referee was to do my very best to be the best that I could for the players, for the coaches, for the game that I loved and for the fans. So there, there was no bias. There was, it was, it was Jersey. They were jerseys. It didn't matter. They were numbers. They were, and they were all NHL players anyway, that I had relationships with no matter what country they were from. I wanted to make a positive difference. Every time I stepped on the ice, I wanted to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. That was my objective. So when I, the, the biggest thing that I had to deal with was that I had to wear a helmet and a visor. I mean, he covered up the national treasure, but nonetheless, it was like it was like I was in a fishbowl 
trying to navigate. And it's funny because Craig McTavish and Gretz and I had a conversation one time. Wayne wore that little jopa that protected yeah. And each of us felt that we had a heightened sense of awareness when we weren't protected. And honest to goodness, I could, I could slip puck. It was like radar. And I was actually trying on a, a vest one time that a guy at a Strathroy made a, a flak jacket. And he told me if you get hit in the chest, it'll disperse the energy. I had a game in Boston, and I'm leading the play in the zone, and Sean O'Donnell on a power play for the Bruins pounds one cross ice, going about 95 miles an hour. He was going to do a cross ice around, and I see it coming. And I this is perfect. I'm going to square. I'm going to take this one in the chest and see if this thing really works. <laughs> so I squared up, and now, but as and it's 95 miles an hour, and I'm seeing things slowly. It's it just coming slow, and all of a sudden. It's starting to rise, and I go up. Nope, it's not going to work. Boom, I hit the deck, and I actually felt it brush my hair. And uh, the Bruins play-by-play -play guy goes, and down goes Frazier. And Gordy Kluzak, Kluzak is the play-by-play -play or color guy. He says, and not a hair out of place. But that's how we see things. Honest to goodness, you see things yeah. coming slow. And I've seen players, if I've slipped a puck, I've seen them just tomb right in the face. I cut three times the flexed pucks all those years I never wore a helmet. The year they made me wear a helmet in my final collective bargaining, the first game I got hit with sticks in the corner five times. Because I was protected. Gary, uh, you obviously did a lot of Stanley Cup final games. Um, I know it's a little bit different than but I mean, the players all have a routine. They get, they have ways of getting themselves up for the game and that sort of thing. Take us through a normal day for a referee in the National Hockey League in the Stanley Cup Finals. Exactly what you would do, or what most guys probably do. Sure. Well, I, I have to tell you, Rick. What I always uh, tried to be was uh, emotionally neutral. I never wanted to be too high. I never wanted to be too low. I tried to stay emotionally in a in a good state. So day before, I'd like to get to the the rink or to the game early. Kelly Sutherland uh, is uh, just a terrific young referee uh, now now a veteran, but um, so he would ad adhere to this kind of philosophy. You have to be calm. You can't go in emotionally charged. So my routine would be night before have an early dinner, good night's sleep, relaxed. I might read. I don't want to read the newspapers. I don't want to watch the the, uh, the sports news. I don't want to have any influence. I just want to be neutral. And so the, the next morning, it's up, ride the bike, go to the health club. We typically stayed at Marriott's. Uh, we would have a meeting at 12 noon with the series supervisor and the official, the backup crew. Uh, we would have discussions about what happened in the previous games, who might be matched up. Oftentimes, when you get to the finals, you've watched it anyway. You've seen the other game. You might have been the backup. Uh, but again, each game, as you know, Rick, is different. Players will play mm -hmm. differently. Uh, there's, there's going to you can you can be prepared uh, with matchups and and things of that sort. But when I drop that puck. I just wanted to turn it over to the players. I wanted the, the game like a flower to unfold for me. I had to be ready 
if there was a, an infraction that occurred right off the bat, I needed to be mentally prepared for it. And here's how I did that. During the national anthem, and I've already seen all the players come out prior to the national anthem, I skate by them, I look at their faces, I look to see if anybody's cut, if anybody's got a scab, some scar tissue. Uh, that's part of my visual preparation. During the national anthem, and I've already seen all those faces, I'll close my eyes and I will visualize each infraction that I could possibly call slashing, putting, hooking, holding. And I'd see the faces of the players that I've just looked at. So, and I would see a dive and a good non-call visually. So I've already called every possible penalty in my head. I've already looked at things that weren't two minute penalties. They were maybe a minute and a half and it was a good non-call. And now I'm ready to drop the puck. I'm ready. I'm emotionally calm. I I am visually prepared for the very first one that can happen because if you miss the first one, you're swimming upstream. So that's how I prepared for it. And uh, it seemed to work for, I, I fooled them for a lot of years. So let's take it one step further, Gary. <laughs> so you've got supervisors that watch all your games and they critique you guys and so on and so forth. And just, just like anybody in a work job. So sure. how soon before a controversial call takes place does somebody contact you to review it? And let's let's go to an extreme case like the Bertuzzi-Moore situation. What would have happened in that instance for something as severe as that for the official and all the in-game and out-game officials? You know, I'm, I'm going to give you a little take, and, and this is no BS. I saw that developing, but I saw it develop a couple of games before. I saw Todd Bertuzzi, and players can can give you sort of a, a tip that they're, they're on a roll. This guy was a beast. And, and I got along great uh, with Todd and afterwards. I, I had a lot of respect for him. That situation shouldn't have happened. Um, but I knew it, it was inevitable because the previous game, he, he put his stick down on the back of somebody's neck behind the net mm -hmm. that uh, I went, whoa. And he got a two-minute penalty for it, but it was it was a bad play, and so that tells me that this guy's got some anger. He's got he's playing on you know way beyond the edge, and he needed to be toned down a little bit. Uh, so in that particular situation, uh, I think there could have been some intervention. Uh, mm -hmm. He's chasing the guy up the ice. More. He's he's goading him. He's he's he wants him to fight. There's no way it's going to happen. Somebody should have jumped in there. Uh, an ounce of prevention uh, is, you know, certainly uh, could have avoided a whole bunch of bad issues. Uh, it affected Todd Bertuzzi for sure, as much as, as Mr. Moore, maybe not physically, but emotionally. And uh, I told Todd one night in Calgary, and Mark Crawford was, was coaching Vancouver. And it was uh, whenever there was a power play, Big Bert position in front of the net, and he would cross-check, shove a guy, a D-man from behind, out of the way as the shot was coming from the point. He screened, and then he would turn, and he had no D on him because he already eliminated him, and boom, in the net. So when he came on the ice in Calgary for that first power play, I said, Bert, I'm going to tell you, and, and here's the warning, and I mean it, if you cross-check, push a D-man from behind and knock him down, you're going to get a penalty. Uh, okay. Well, sure enough, <laughs> that's what happened. Win the draw back to the point, clears the guy out, down on his nose, 
up goes my arm. Now he sees my arm up. Now he's pissed off. So he whacks another guy. And I went, boom, boom. That's another one. And now I blow the whistle and he punched a guy in the face. That's the trifecta. He got three. So he mouths off and I gave him 10. He got six minutes in minors and a 10 minute misconduct. They scored two goals on the two minors and he never, he never played Crow benched him. Crawford benched him uh, for the rest of the game. Now the next night, it's a back backer. I've got Vancouver and Edmonton and Ricky, you know, in the, in the Northlands where all the visiting team would congregate, they kick the soccer ball around, yeah. they warm up. I'm wheeling my bag in and the game stopped because Fraser's walking by Bertuzzi and Bert's giving me the stink eye. And I went, hi, Bert. He just never said anything. He just stared at me. So I'm, I'm walking away and I'm 15 feet away and he goes, hey, Terry, are we going for the quad tonight? I said, Bert, that's entirely up to you. I never had another issue with Todd Bertuzzi after that. When I said something, he knew I meant it. We I, we never had another issue. It's about well, what I was referring to, Terry. What would happen with the officials, like the supervisors, like after that? Like, would you have to report? You you write a game report. So where I'm going is, I want to take it one step further because what I'm I'm trying to do, get uh, pump your tires here because how much work you guys do. That a game. The yellow jerseys game is an example from the have another donut incident. You as a, sure. an official have to be aware of everything going on around the league at all times. So it's not just game to game to game. you got to know everything because these incidents can all flare up. So something like that developing, like the Bertuzzi incident I used, and then the yellow jerseys incident, you know, it was probably a dark day for hockey, probably more embarrassing than anything. But maybe walk the listeners through that process and how it developed over a couple of games and led to that. And again, there was more officials involved than just one. Well, when there's a situation like the Bertuzzi and Moore issue, uh, the officials are up way into the wee hours writing reports and everything has to be like, I, I started, my first president of the NHL was Clarence Campbell when I signed my first contract. And Mr. Campbell was a Nuremberg prosecutor for the Canadian army. He was like Rhodes Scholar, lawyer, he wanted everything detailed and you had to write it in hand and you had to sign it and you had to fax it in back then, had a game report. And so I was schooled in that process and uh, these guys would have been up hours writing reports to make sure because whatever they submitted in their report would become evidence in the court of law. And they were, uh, each official had to go and, and be part of, of that process. So it's it's really serious stuff. Um, and even now, uh, as we move to uh, appeal processes for players, uh, you know, if the referee's uh, comments or his written report uh, wasn't bang on, it could affect whether or not the player would serve a suspension or whether he would, uh, in fact, uh, be reinstated. Uh, so uh, those kinds of things are, are crucial yeah. in, in how you, you look at it. Uh, back then, we weren't, we didn't have replays. We had to do it from recall. Fortunately, I've got a, you know, pretty good memory and and a VCR for a, a brain, uh, so I could replay that play in my head. Uh, it is important uh, that fans know you do, you don't. The work isn't done when the horse sounds at the end. You got paperwork to do. That's right. Uh, and you know, it, it's it's. The entirety of the job, you take it seriously. It, it's it's really important 
uh, and especially players. Um, I wanted to protect the players. I think that was my most important job was was to provide them for for safety, uh, but also to protect themselves from themselves at times. And I remember in my final game with it was uh, Newark Rangers and Philadelphia Flyers tied for that last playoff spot. It was tied. It went into a shootout, but with less than a minute left, Daniel Cursillo was playing for the Flyers and he got involved with stall. And I'm on the other side of the net as I stopped play. And I saw Cursillo. I, I just knew the wheels were spinning. The eyes were rolling and he was going to punch stall. I did not want to have to call a penalty in a tie game with the, with both teams last playoff spot and I blasted behind the net and just as Cursillo had the left ready to throw it I grabbed it by the bicep and I spun him now he thought I was another player and he was he got the other hand he was going to punch me and he said well you're lucky it was you and I said no you're lucky it was me you were just going to take a penalty I saved that player from taking a minute stupid penalty with everything on the line for their season they ended up flyers winning the shootout and they go to the stanley cup finals that year and lose in six to the Chicago blackhawks so if if fans think that the referees are just out there to you know call the penalties or yeah. i wanted to i wanted to avoid calling penalties wherever i could the tiger williams situation i wanted him not to take a penalty i want him to play and I want all the players to play. We'll talk about the have another donut situation for our young listeners that don't know that story. That's uh, that, that's the one I wanted to get you to the yellow jerseys day. That's a pretty wild story. Well, I had the game before that one in Boston and uh, it, it was bedlam. I got punched out of the fight. Uh, John McClain hit me right between the eyes when I went in to, uh, to help uh, the linesman, uh, Ron Finn. We had two fights going at one time and uh, I thought I could get there fast enough McLean smoked me right between the eyes and it made me awful mad. I ragdolled uh, him and got him the penalty box. It's on YouTube. You can see it. Uh, but uh, the uh, that was a tough game. Jim Schoenfeld was was coaching and, and he was uh, they had a very successful uh, season uh, that year. They came out of the Mickey Mouse uh, uh, sort of complaint that Wayne Gretzky made about uh, the Jersey Devils. Uh, yeah. And they were poised. It wasn't too long after that they would uh, challenge for it and win the Stanley Cup. Uh, but uh, the next night, you know, uh, as uh, luck, luck would have it, uh, the Devils got spanked pretty good. And, and Jim Schoenfeld, being the fiery guy he is, uh, he gathers around Don Kuharski and Coho slipped and off the mat and bumped into the wall. And then we heard all that stuff that was captured on tape about uh, go have another donut, you fat pig. Um, we had, uh, the very next game, uh, Jim Shondell was suspended by Brian O'Neill for one game. Uh, it was on a Sunday that next game was going to happen. And, uh, a season's ticket holder for the New Jersey Devils who happened to be a circuit court judge, uh, on Sunday, uh, imposed an injunction on the suspension and, uh, Shawnee was going to be behind the bench. Well, Dave Newell. Uh, God rest his soul, was the president of the NHL Officials Association and was assigned to work that game. And there was no way that Newley was going on the ice if Jim Schottel was behind the bench. John Ziegler was off in England at the time, and the chairman of the board, Bill Wirtz, threw 
John McCauley, who was begging his friend Dave Newell to go and work the game. He was going to be fired. Mr. Wirtz had called and said, if these guys aren't on the ice, they're all fired. And Dave Newell stuck to his guns, and he wouldn't let the linesman on either. And they ended up over an hour of delay. They left the building, mm -hmm. and the yellow jerseys came on, the off-ice crew, to referee the game. It was a black eye for sure. Now, I was in Detroit to do the West Conference game the next night. And I got a call from Bill Clement on ESPN, and he said, what's going to happen? And I said, I've already been in touch with our uh, lawyer for the association, and we understand that the guys have been terminated, and we will not go on the ice tomorrow night in Detroit unless they're reinstated. They'll be having negotiations tomorrow. I didn't know until 5 o'clock for a 7.30 game I got the clearance to go to the rink and referee that game. They had backup refs in place yeah. for that one as well. That's the awesome. politics and the stuff behind. I mean, Tom Isiak, when when uh, he got uh, you know twenty game suspension, uh, that was a, another oh, yeah. major incident. Yeah. Major incident. And uh, Ronnie Foyt was the linesman he trained, and Foyt lasted a year or two after that, and he got terminated, uh, and I believe wrongfully, uh, but it was a bit of a payback. Um, you know, you, you have to pick your battle. And uh, some of them, uh, you know, when you're when you're battling with the league, you're just not going to win. Squid, we're running out of time Kerry, here, but we got a couple of things left. Kerry, give them one. Yeah, um, one of the good, the great things about uh, the relationships that you build. I remember when I started coaching in the ECHL. Now, when you're a player, you can do something about the game. You can go out, you can hit someone, punch someone, do whatever it is. But when you're coaching, boy, I'll tell you, it, it, at the first, it was very, very difficult for me. I would be screaming at referees, waving my arms. So Andy Van Helleman was the head of officiating for the ECHL. He comes in, he said, he sits down, he says, Rick, I want to talk to you. Okay. You know, so anyway, he says, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I don't want you screaming at the referees. I don't want you waving your arms and making them look bad. Put your hands in your pocket. Play with your nuts if you want, whatever you want to do, and then call the referee over and have a conversation with him. So I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll try that. So there's one night, Terry uh, Koharski, Don's uh, younger brother. He's refereeing, and uh, he makes three calls in a row against us. So I, I, I put my hands in my pile, I call him over, and I can see him. He, he's like this getting ready and he goes oh. so he's, he doesn't want to talk to me so he comes over and I got my hands in my pocket and I, I'm saying talking to him coho and our things and everything he said by the way I said you should see that blonde over there by the penalty box you got to go take a look at her she's she's unbelievable you look again so he goes to turn around I said don't turn around she's gonna see you turning around so anyway he goes so I, I keep talking and then finally I said oh and by the way those were three horseshit calls. So he goes over to the penalty box and pretends he's talking to them in there to tell them something in the penalty box. Meanwhile, he turns around to me and he goes, ooh, because he looked at the girl I was talking about. <laughs> we, got three we got three power plays in a row, like in, I think in the, in the next nine minutes. And uh, after that, you know what? I, it, was, it was the best lesson I think I ever learned as a coach. And I got to thank Andy for that because – if it wasn't for him, I probably would have wouldn't have lasted as long as I did as a coach. 
Well, see, and it, it also felt good that your hands were in your pocket. They were better in your pocket than they were uh, the point finger. Yeah. yeah. You know, but that's a, that's was a, a terrific lesson. And one of the things that I tried to do in the early 80s, I wanted to communicate with coaches at the bench because if I left a message to a captain, quite oftentimes the, the message was, you know, ah, he's a blah, blah, blah. It would never be communicated the way that I, I delivered it. So I thought, Brian Murphy was a very emotional coach in Washington. He was standing on the boards, and, and you guys remember he had kind of the Daffy Duck kind of uh, uh, lisp and talk. And he, So he, this particular game, he's on the bench, he's up on the boards, he's waving and flapping his arms. He can you. So I went over. Now, once the referee puts himself at the bench, you got to eat everything the coach is going to give you because there's no way you could legitimately give him a bench penalty. But I used this open palm. I went, Brian, this means peace. I went in a monotone voice, Brian, I'd love to have a conversation with you, but to do so, I need you to get off the boards and please calm down. Well, he came right down to my level. I said, now you may not agree with what I'm gonna tell you, but this is the reason I did to do whatever it was he was upset about. He thought for a minute. He went, well, Kerry, you're right about one thing. I don't agree with what you said, but thanks for coming <laughs> over and talking to me. And <laughs> from that moment on, a seed was planted and we had a relationship that he knew I was approachable. I could control the conversation. If he did it respectfully, you have a convo. So that works. I mean, it really does. I don't, I'm not always right, for God's sake. We all know that. And, and I, I would be the first to admit if I missed we got a fire drill. Uh, that's at my end. Nice, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Kerry, great, great to have you. Love to have you come back on again at some point and uh, do this again and just extend what you like to talk about. We want to thank you so much. Uh, good luck moving forward, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Thanks for joining us. I, I appreciate it, and I hope the building's not burning down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah you better get out there. Thanks a lot, Kerry. Thanks, Kerry. Thanks.